Now, um, the Reformation is not particularly known for uh, its insights into Trinitarian theology. Uh, most of the uh, effort and energy and thought in the Reformation period went into questions of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So obviously Luther's doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, questions of Christology, the person of Christ was absolutely central to uh, the Reformation. And there, was, there were debates about particular forms of Christology within the Reformation movement. And also um, questions of ecclesiology, the uh, doctrine of the church. And you don't tend to get to look at the Reformation as a period which uh, has great new insights into the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, by and large, most scholars would say that the Reformation theologians uh, largely took the doctrine of the Trinity for granted. That was kind of the way um, they believed about God because that had been inherited from the early church. Uh, that's not entirely true. We'll come on to that in, in a moment. But um, uh, and So that's the first point, that the Reformation isn't known for its insight into the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, again, in theological history, it's a fairly commonplace observation to say that actually out of the three persons of the Trinity, it's the Holy Spirit, the one is the, is the one person of the Trinity in whom there's been least interest historically. Now, again, that's less true now. There has been in recent years quite a number of, um, uh, a lot of interest in the person of the Holy Spirit and theology of the Spirit, pneumatology as we call it. Uh, but in the history of Christianity, particularly in the patristic, medieval, and Reformation periods. I guess there's more interest in the, the Father and the Son, less so in the Spirit. But again, I think that is a bit of a caricature as well. And I want to look at particularly um, at what Luther and Calvin say about the Holy Spirit, especially Calvin. I want to focus on him because, as I say, as I mentioned to RT a number of years ago, um, I do think he has a very rich theology of the Spirit. But let's start with uh, Martin Luther. So Luther and Calvin on the Holy Spirit. So to begin with, I want to think about um, Luther on the Spirit. Now, there's been quite a lot of interest in uh, Luther's scholarship in recent years on some of Luther's later works, his later disputations. Um, as an academic theologian, he would often uh, engage in what in the Middle Ages they had in universities, these disputations where someone maybe was offering their their, their doctorate and they would go into a, they would have to defend their doctorate and Luther as one of the professors would have to, have to listen to and argue these um, over this academic work and some of those did focus upon the Trinity. His um, uh, great Genesis commentary later on has some particularly uh, fascinating insights into the, the, uh, the life of the Trinity and there's a, there is a Trinitarian structure to Luther's thinking which has been noticed by recent scholarship. But you have to say that the Holy Spirit is not particularly prominent in Luther's theology. Um, there is one particular um, book that does that, which is a, a book by um, a Scandinavian theologian called Regan Prento, which was published back in 1946, uh, called Spiritus Creator, Luther's Concept of the Holy Spirit. And in that book... Um, Luther's theology of the Holy Spirit is explored, and it says that Luther teaches that the Holy Spirit comes to us through outward signs. He comes to us through things like sacramental uh, actions of the church. He comes to, to us through our neighbour. He comes to us through the word of preaching, and yet he is not identical to those sacramental signs. Now, he also says that the Holy Spirit is vital in understanding the distinction between the law and the gospel. So this is something which, um, again, you, uh, if you know something about Luther, you'll know what a very important distinction he made was between the law and the gospel. And it goes like this. Both law and gospel are there in Scripture. They're both from God, but it's not quite as easy as saying you've got the law in the Old Testament and the gospel in the New. Yes, he says there's more law in the Old Testament and less gospel, and there's more gospel and less law in the New Testament, but it's not quite that they are kind of divided neatly along the lines of the two Testaments. The law for Luther is given by God to show us our need for grace. It shows us what we have failed to do and how much more we have to do. So the preaching of the law is always rather depressing. Now, when you go to church and you hear a sermon that leaves you feeling rather low and depressed, and miserable and a failure, that is probably because you have heard the teaching of the law. 
I remember I went for many years to a church some, some time ago, and I would always leave this church feeling really depressed. I never quite knew why I was feeling so bad. I would always leave this church feeling miserable. And I think this shouldn't be the way. Normally when you go to church, you should feel uplifted. But I felt miserable every time I left that church. And the more I realized it, the more I realized I thought, That's, I, I know why, because actually the preaching somehow in that church was preaching the law. It was always saying, this is this vision of the Christian life. This is what you ought to be like. And I always felt, well, I'm not quite like that. I don't quite measure up to that. And therefore, I felt rather depressed when I left the church. That's the preaching of the law. The law when the law is preached, it always renders you kind of miserable, unhappy, a bit of a failure. So that is the preaching of the law. But the gospel for Luther comes as the good news that God forgives and justifies by his grace received through faith without merits, without any internal merit, but owned solely by the merits of Christ. Luther argues that the law and the gospel need each other. There's a sense in which you need the preaching of the law. If you only have the preaching of the law, you get despair, but the gospel without the law is not really the gospel. And for, for, for Luther, theology is a right reading of scripture, and therefore the ability to distinguish between law and gospel is vital to being a good theologian. For Luther, you cannot be a good theologian unless you know how to distinguish the law from the gospel. Bad theologians always think the law is the gospel. If you preach morality, that is somehow the gospel. That's bad theology, according to Luther. You need to be able to distinguish these two things. Now, it gets even more complicated with Luther, because for Luther, the same, it's not quite easy as saying, you know, there are certain bits of the Bible that are law and certain bits that are, that are gospel. It's actually even more complicated than that because the same statement can be law and gospel, depending on how you read it. So, for example, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, you can read that as law or you can read it as gospel. You can read it as law in the sense of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're not poor in spirit, then you have failed to meet the law. You see, see how that means? If you preach it that way, the poor in the spirit are the ones who are blessed. Therefore, if you're not poor in spirit, you have failed to meet the standard of the law. That's the preaching of the law. When it's heard as a command to be like this, it comes to us as the law. But the gospel, that can be preached as gospel. Because when it's preached as this is what happens to the person who has grasped Christ and the value of knowing Christ, through faith alone, that you are poor in spirit, then that becomes gospel. It's a description of the person who has understood the nature of Christ and the gift of faith. Now, what makes the difference between law and gospel? What makes a text and changes it from the law into the gospel? Luther's answer is the Holy Spirit. The, the Bible becomes gospel for us when the Spirit takes us, takes it, and makes it into gospel turns it from law into gospel. He makes it live, he makes it real. Reagan Prenter in that book talked about a, what he called a hiatus, a kind of interval of time between the preaching of the word and the coming of the spirit. These are close together, but they're not identical to one another. You can preach the, preach the Bible in a way that comes over as law, but it's only when the spirit comes that it's enabled to be heard as gospel. The same is true for Luther uh, of the sacraments. For, um, uh, again, for Luther, the sacraments, or the, the Holy Spirit uses sacramental signs, bread and wine, the water of baptism. But the Spirit remains sovereign over them. And so Luther holds back from saying that the Spirit automatically comes every time we preach, the, preach or celebrate the sacraments. That's giving too much emphasis upon the preacher or the priest. The freedom of the Holy Spirit is vital. For Luther, the Spirit always manifests himself in visible and outward signs, and yet there is still this, what he calls the sovereignty of the Spirit over the external signs, the insufficiency of the outward word. The Spirit does not come without the word, for Luther, but he is not bound by the word. Now again, for Luther, Christ is the centre of everything. His is a very Christocentric theology. We are justified, not by our own merits, but by the merits of Christ, the righteousness of Christ given to us. 
The righteousness that we need to be saved cannot never be our own because our own righteousness is always frail, weak, insubstantial. It is the righteousness of Christ that saves us, which we receive by Christ. But the work of the Spirit is to point to Christ. He says, without the Spirit, it is impossible to come to Christ. And there's a sense in Luther that the Spirit is the one who publishes the news of Christ. Now, you get this in a statement that Luther makes in um, the large catechism. Luther wrote catechisms, which were things that, um, you know, if you're a good Lutheran, you have to read and you have to learn them to learn your faith. So this is what Luther says. Neither you nor I could ever know anything of Christ or believe in him or take him as our Lord unless these were first offered to us and bestowed upon our hearts through the preaching of the gospel by the Spirit. The work is finished and completed. Christ has acquired and won the treasure for us by his sufferings, death and resurrection, etc., But if the work remained hidden and no one knew of it, it would have been all in vain, all lost. In order that this treasure might not be buried, but put to use and enjoyed, God has caused the word to be published and proclaimed, in which he has given the Holy Spirit to offer and apply to us this treasure of salvation. Therefore, to make holy, to sanctify, is nothing else than to bring us to the Lord Christ to receive this blessing which we could not obtain by ourselves." Now, if you notice, read closely that text there. The Spirit's work for Luther is primarily in a, enabling us to know Christ, to believe in him. It's the idea of faith as a gift in the Spirit, gift of the Spirit. Justification consists of the gift of Christ offered in both verbal and embodied sacramental form. But the Spirit is the one who makes sure that that news of Christ is not hidden. It's known. The Spirit is the one who publishes, if you like, preaches. The Spirit is the preacher of Christ. So every time Christ is preached, every time the gospel is preached, that is the Spirit preaching that word through the preacher. So there's one thing about Luther. Luther always says that the Spirit is the one who publishes the news of Christ, who makes it known and applies it to our hearts. He also highlights very strongly the importance and relationship of the Spirit to the word of preaching and the sacraments. And this is very distinctive of Luther. Luther actually says the Spirit only ever comes to us through physical things, through physical things. Um, um, This is what Luther says. He says, the Spirit cannot be with us except in material and physical things such as the word, water, Christ's body, and in his saints on earth. That's quite an important statement of Luther. This is what he says. The Spirit cannot be with us except in material and physical things such as the word, water, Christ's body, and in his saints on earth. And so therefore he's saying that the Spirit comes to us through these physical things. He comes to us through the word of preaching. He comes to us through the water of baptism. He comes to us through the bread and the wine of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. He comes to us through our neighbour, our fellow Christian, the saints, the community of Christians that speak God's word to one another. The Spirit is not somehow floating free. He always comes to us through these specific signs. And Luther ties the Spirit very closely, particularly to the sacramental signs, to water of baptism, bread and wine of Holy Communion the word of absolution that's uttered by the priest and so on. Now Luther does make a distinction between outward and inward. He says this, when God sends sends forth his holy gospel, he deals with us in a twofold manner, first outwardly and then inwardly. Outwardly he deals with us through the oral form of the gospel, through material signs, baptism, the sacrament of the altar. Inwardly he deals with us through the Holy Spirit, faith and other gifts. So these two things going on at the same time, the Spirit both is conveyed to us through external signs, sacraments, words, and so on, but also applies it in this inner way at the same time. And so this is something that Luther, again, wants to emphasize, that he makes it important, more just to say it's important, that in this inner working of the Spirit, the work of God is known, it's felt. It's one of the distinctions between Luther and some of the other theologians who went before him. One of his great critiques about uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, the great medieval theologian, was that um, Thomas Aquinas has nothing of this affective 
emotional kind of encounter, not, not so much encounter, but, but, but the effects of the gospel. He says when you read the uh, Summa Theologica of um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, he says as if, as if Aquinas doesn't know anything about um, living the Christian life and doubt and temptation and trying to struggle your way through the Christian life and getting it right half the time and wrong half the time. He doesn't have that, that notion of experience in him. And with Luther, there always is this, this very kind of visceral sense of, 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 of the experience of living the Christian life. Now, this comes out probably most often in Luther's hymns. Now, Luther was a, a poet. He was a hymn writer. He was a, a, a songwriter. He, he played the lute. Um, he was quite a musician in his own way. Not very often. never did it publicly, but he kind of did that in private. And um, he wrote a number of hymns. And very often in Luther's hymns, uh, you can often hear them today. I mean, the great... Um, uh, Lutheran musician, of course, is Johann Sebastian Bach, who uh, took much of Luther's uh, writings and um, put them to music. Uh, Bach is the great Lutheran musician. And one of uh, Luther's particular hymns was this hymn, Nun bitten wir den Heiligen Geist, which goes like this. And let us pray to the Holy Ghost for the true faith of all things the most, that in our last moments he may befriend us, and as home we go that he may tend us. Through noble light shine as thou hast shone, teach us to know Jesus Christ alone, clinging to our Saviour whose blood has, hath brought us, who to our true home has again brought us. Thou, sweet love, grant us favour, so that we feel within of thy love the glow, that we of, the, of our hearts may love true the others, and with peace and joy live as good brothers. Thou comfort best in danger or blame, Help us to fear neither death nor shame, that we may not falter when all shall fail us, and the devil with his taunts shall assail us. Now again, in that text, you see some of Luther's affective theology, his emotional theology. He prays for the Holy Spirit. And again, this, um, you know, now let's pray to the Holy Spirit, the invocation of the Spirit, come Holy Spirit, is a prayer that you often find in Luther's hymns. And what are you expecting to happen when the Holy Spirit is invoked in this way is that we need to feel the faith that we have. That that feeling comes not so much by focusing on the feeling, but it comes instead upon focusing upon the promise of Christ given to us in Christ through the word and sacrament. And so you can see that for Luther, faith has to be felt. There has to be an emotional side to Christian faith. So summarising Luther's theology of the Spirit, you'd want to say these three things. Christ's word to us is effective. Christ's work for us is complete. And the Spirit is the one who enables us to know this. He publishes it, he preaches it, and he enables us to feel its effects within our lives. If you like, the Spirit is about the noetic effects of salvation so that we can feel it. Secondly, faith is the gift of the Spirit. This, in fact, is the main function of the Spirit. Faith is not a quality that we have, a kind of something that we exercise, something, some psychic power that some people have and that some people don't have. No, it is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a human activity. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the Spirit only ever works through means. Luther ties the Spirit very closely to the Word and the sacraments. So there you have this Luther's theology of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who publishes, makes known the work of Christ, applies it to our hearts so that we feel it, enables us to believe, but gives us this word in and through sacramental signs of water, holy communion, the word of preaching. Now I want to go on to Calvin. Calvin on the Holy Spirit. Because I think Calvin takes you a step further than Luther does in this theology of the Spirit. I want to um, read you something that was written about uh, Calvin's theology by B.B. Uh, Warfield, great Reformed theologian of the past. And Warfield said this about Calvin on the Spirit. It is probable, however, that Calvin's greatest contribution to theological science lies in the rich development which he gives, and which he was the first to give, to the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit. In, some, in the same sense in which we may say that the doctrine of sin and grace dates from Augustine, the doctrine of sanctification, of satisfaction from Anselm, the doctrine of justification by faith from Luther, we must say that the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit is a gift from Calvin to the church. 
It was he who first related the whole experience of salvation, specifically to the working of the Holy Spirit, worked it out in its details, and contemplated its several steps and stages in orderly progress as the product of the Holy Spirit's specific work in applying salvation to the soul. Thus he gave systematic and adequate expression to the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit and made it the assured possession of the Church of God. What Calvin did was specifically to replace the doctrine of the Church as the sole source of assured knowledge of God and sole institute of salvation by the Holy Spirit. Previously, men had looked to the Church for all the trustworthy knowledge of God obtainable and as well for all the communications of grace accessible. Calvin taught them that neither function has been committed to the Church, but God the Holy Spirit has retained both in his own hands and confers both knowledge of God and communion with God on whom he will. Now let's say something quite bold about Calvin's theology of the Spirit, that the, that the uh, theology of the Spirit is the gift of Calvin to the church, and therefore it points up how important Calvin's theology is, a Calvin's theology of the Spirit is. And I want to suggest that Calvin's theology of the Spirit goes beyond Luther's understanding, which in some ways is a little bit tangential to, to, to his teaching. It's not a real focus of Luther's teaching, where actually the Spirit is right at the heart of Calvin's teaching. Now, if you... Um, uh, know something of the, uh, uh, the Institutes, Calvin's great summary of the Christian faith. You will know it has four books, and the four books have a Trinitarian form to them. Book one is all about God the Creator, the knowledge of God through scriptural revelation. If you like, it focuses upon God the Father. Book two is about God the Redeemer. It's about Christ. It's the work of salvation. Christ who redeems from sin. It's about the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the Word incarnate. Book three is entitled, The Way in Which We Receive the Grace of Christ, What Benefits Come From It, and What Effects Follow. And so effectively, book three of the Institute is all about the Holy Spirit. Book four, incidentally, is actually about the Church. So that's why you have this Trinitarian structure, Father, Son, Spirit, Church. That's effectively the structure of the Institutes. Now, in this book three in particular of the Institutes, you find Calvin developing this very rich theology of the Spirit. He starts with saying that the Spirit is not just confined to the church. He says that the, it is the Spirit who everywhere diffused sustains all things, causes them to grow, and quickens them in heaven and in earth. Because he, the Spirit, is circumscribed by no limits, he is accepted from the category of creatures, but in transfusing into all things his energy and breathing into them, in essence, life and movement, he is indeed plainly divine. The Spirit is the one who, if you like, breathes life into all being, into all life. It is the Spirit who breathes life into Adam and Eve at the creation. The Spirit breathes life into every living thing. So the spirit, you begin to sense in Luther, in, in Calvin, is not just tied to the work of salvation, it's tied to the work of creation. Something much bigger that's going on here. Now that actually, that text comes from but one of um, uh, the Institutes, where he's discussing the identity, the divine identity of the spirit. He goes on beyond that in book three to talk about how the spirit, yes, breathes life into all living things, but in a special concentrated way, he works in those who are the elect. In book three, he begins to talk about what he talks, talks about, a richer outpouring of the Spirit for those who are of the elect, those who are in the church. So the Spirit, if you like, is diffused within all of creation. The Spirit who breathes life into everything is concentrated. A richer outpouring of the Spirit is given to those who are of the elect. And so you can see Calvin tying together his doctrine of creation and his doctrine of salvation, the sense of continuity, which is very characteristic of Calvin's theology. Of course, Calvin has a very co continuous view of the, the covenants. He doesn't have such a, a strong distinction between law and gospel uh, as Luther has. So here's, here's the beginnings of Calvin's theology of the Spirit, if infusing, diffused through all life, but working in this concentrated way among the elect. But then he goes beyond that to talk about how the Spirit in this richer outpouring, that raises the question, how does that then work? 
How is the Spirit in, outpoured in this richer way among the elect? Well, book two speaks of the work of Christ as mediator and redeemer. It talks about the identity and work of Christ. When you get on to book three, as I said, this is where Calvin begins to talk about the Holy Spirit. And he begins with some fairly bold things about the Spirit. He says this, As long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. It's a very bold statement by Calvin. If this work of Christ has been done, the human race has been saved, and yet he remains outside us, separated from him, note the language very carefully, the work of Christ is useless. It might not even have happened. It's of no use to us whatsoever. But then Calvin goes on to talk about this secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. And you know the difference here between Calvin and Luther. It's not just about how we come to know Christ and his benefits, which is the emphasis that Luther has. The Spirit is the one who publishes this, makes it known. It even goes beyond Luther's sense that you sort of feel the effects of it. But for Calvin, this is how these benefits actually become ours. So for Calvin, the work of Christ is not efficacious on its own. It only becomes so through the Holy Spirit. And so you can see here he's going a little bit beyond Luther, I would suggest. The emphasis is not on publishing the news of Christ, letting it be known, but on the Spirit actively uniting us with Christ, which is what our salvation consists in. Now this is really the heart, when you get to the heart of Calvin's theology, the Spirit. In fact, I think it's where you get to the heart of Calvin's theology, full stop. This is what he says, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. Theologians and historians over the years have debated at some length what is the heart of Calvin's theology. It's very clear what the heart of Luther's theology is. There's no debate about that. It's justification by faith. He makes it very clear. That is the article by which the church stands or falls. It's a little bit less obvious what the heart of Calvin's theology is. But I would want to make a claim that the heart of Calvin's theology is this idea of our union with Christ by the Spirit. It's not justification by faith. That is important for Calvin. He believes in it. He doesn't disagree with Luther on that. But it doesn't have the central place in Calvin's theology that it does for Luther. For Calvin, the heart of Christian faith is this union with Christ by the Spirit. This communion with Christ. This fellowship with Christ. This participation in Christ. So for Calvin, God is utterly beyond us. He is utterly transcendent. We have no rights over him, no claim upon him. We are deeply mired in sin. Every part of us is touched by sin. And of course, Calvin's doctrine of total depravity does not mean that every single part of a, a, a created being, created human, humanity is, is depraved. He's not, not saying we are totally 100% bad. He is just saying that there is no part of us which is not in some way touched by sin. There's not some little spark of divine presence in us, whether our mind or our soul or our whatever it might be, which was a position which many medieval theologians held. There was a little divine spark, often called the synteresis, that somehow uh, remained untouched and unfallen. Calvin says that's not true. Every single part of us is touched by sin. Yet, God chooses to give himself to us. Now, where does God give himself to us? Calvin says, all God's blessings are given to us in Christ. That's where God's blessings are given to us. He often uses the image of a fountain. You often find that little image used in Calvin's work at work, this idea of a fountain. Uh, and, and Christ, if you like, is the fountain of God's grace. All of God's gifts and grace come to us through this fountain of Christ. He talks about the fountain of blessing, which is Christ. Now, how do we access that 
those blessings that come to us in Christ? Yes, through faith. Of course, he agrees with Luther on that. But the effect of, 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 of faith for Calvin is particularly this union with Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit unites us with Christ in this mystical union, he calls it. And in that union, by being united with Christ in the Spirit, by becoming one with him, in full fellowship, participating in Christ, all of God's gifts become ours. Justification, sanctification, perseverance, you name them. All of God's gifts are given to us in that union with Christ by the Spirit. So you can see justification by faith is still there. It's still there in, in Calvin's theology, but it's one of the many gifts that we receive through our union with Christ. And so you can see how the, the, the tone is slightly different from Luther. It's not that they're disagreeing with each other, the emphasis is different. They both believe in justification by faith, whereas for Luther that's absolutely central. For Calvin it's one of the many gifts that is given through our union with Christ by the Spirit. So Calvin talks quite boldly about this. He says this, this is in uh, book three um, uh, of the Institutes. Therefore that joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, are accorded the highest degree of importance, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts which he has been endowed, with which he has been endowed. We do not therefore contemplate him outside ourselves from afar. So you can see what's going on in Calvin's theology. He's saying if, if, if Christ is outside of us, we are separate from him. All that Christ has done is of no use to us whatsoever. What has to happen is a profound and intimate union with Christ. And that's what happens by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who unites us with Christ so that we know Christ. We are one with him. So that all that is Christ's become becomes ours. That language, that language of a mystical union, that's not the language you normally think about with Calvin, is it? The word mystical and the word Calvin don't normally go together in people's thoughts. Now, you can say, you know, Calvin is not a mystic in the kind of medieval sense of that word, but he does have this strong sense of this mystical union, this union which cannot ultimately be described. It cannot ultimately be captured in words, but it's something which is experienced within the Christian life. This is what happens, the mystical union. Calvin goes on. Sorry, just go back. Where are we? Um, oh, we lost it there, don't we? So, here is this, this indwelling of Christ in our hearts. For Calvin, there is a genuine participation in God which takes place by the Holy Spirit. Strictly speaking, Calvin wants to talk about a participation in Christ by which we participate in God. He is very strong on the distinction between the creation and the creator. We don't have the kind of mystical kind of oneness with God that you find in some mystical theologians or, or is, you, know, you get in some forms of, sort of Hinduism or pantheism. That's not for Calvin at all. There is a distinction between the creation and the creator. But if the creation and the creator are entirely separate, then there is no salvation. How does that union happen? It happens by the Holy Spirit. Now, um, here is more than just objective belief or a personal knowledge of it. This is a subjective appropriation of salvation. Now, this is seen more clearly, perhaps, in uh, when you look at the sacramental teaching of Luther and Calvin and others. Um, again, now you, you will know, you may know that uh, Luther, Luther's sacramental teaching uh, held very strongly to what he called the real presence. And that is that. Uh, Luther believed that when you receive the bread and the wine of communion, you don't just receive a picture of Jesus, a sort of visual aid that helps you remember him, you actually do receive Christ's physical body and blood. The reason Luther said that was because Christ's righteousness has to become ours, Christ has to become ours, and Christ's righteousness, you can't divide up Christ into a kind of physical and a spiritual bit, a divine and a human bit, because Christ is one, and therefore, as Christ is to become ours, he has to become ours body and soul. And so therefore, he has to give himself to us physically in the bread and the wine. So Luther held to the real presence. Now, he didn't believe you needed a, a complicated doctrine like transubstantiation to explain that. He actually thought it was a bit of a mystery. You can't explain it. Um, all, he, all he said was, when Jesus did the Last Supper, he just said, this is my body, that's it. When you get a, a word from God, what do you do? You don't question it. You don't try to understand it. You just believe it. When it says, this is my body, end of story, full stop, move on to the next thing. So, Luther believes in the real presence. As you may also know, 
At the other end of the scale of Reformation theologians on the sacraments, uh, Huldreich Zwingli, the Swiss uh, reformer, uh, rejected the real presence entirely. Instead, went for a, uh, a theology of what you might call real absence. That in the bread and the wine, there is no sense in which Christ is present. These are memorials. This is a memorial meal where we gather around a meal and we remember Jesus. And these tokens of bread and wine, they're not Christ offered to us. Uh, they are tokens. Uh, they are visual aids that help us remember Jesus and that to bind us together by our, our partaking in this meal together. That's what it is for Swingley. Calvin steers a line between these two things. For Calvin, in Holy Communion, in the bread and the wine, Christ is not physically present in that same way that Luther says, but nor is it simply a memorial meal whereby we remember Jesus' death for us 2,000 years ago. For Calvin, in the Lord's Supper, we are given a real participation in Christ's ascended body by the Holy Spirit. So what happens for Calvin in the Holy Communion is that the Holy Spirit lifts us and our hearts to the heavenly places where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now he says to Luther, well, we don't have Christ's physical body here on earth because it's ascended, it's at the right hand of the Father. But that doesn't mean Christ is absent for us because what happens in the Holy Communion is that our hearts are lifted to the heavenly places to participate in Christ. And so for Calvin, in some ways the most important statement of the, of the communion liturgy is where it says, lift up your hearts. The Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts. We are lifted up into the heavenly places to participate in Christ in that way. So there is for Calvin in the communion a real spiritual feeding. Not a physical feeding, as Luther would have it, but not a mere, mere remembering, as Finley would have it, but a real spiritual feeding on Christ a communion with Christ, a holy communion with Christ, which is not just a figure of speech, not just a metaphor. There's something real happening here, not a physical eating of Jesus, the body of Jesus, as Luther seemed to imply it was, but a genuine feeding upon Christ in the Spirit. And so again, the Holy Spirit is actually vital to Calvin's Eucharistic holy, you know, theology of Holy Communion. When we gather together around the bread and the wine, our hearts are lifted to share in, to participate in, to be united with Christ's true body, which is at the right hand of the Father. And so for Calvin, Calvin doesn't tie the spirit quite as closely to the physical elements of the water of baptism and the bread and wine of communion as Luther does. But he does create a connection between them in a way that, that, that Zwingli doesn't. And that's why I think Calvin is actually quite a resource for charismatic and Pentecostal theologians, more so than Luther or Zwingli. Because he leaves a little bit more of a space between the sacraments and the spirit. He doesn't tie the spirit so closely to the sacraments that the spirit somehow cannot move outside them. And you kind of feel with Luther at the end of the day that the spirit cannot be with us apart from physical things, material things like words and water and bread and wine, the spirit seems somehow enclosed, tied to those things. Calvin's theology, theology gives you a bit more space to work with. And yet he doesn't go as far as Swingley implying a kind of absent Christ, a Christ who is not really present in any way. Calvin has a real substantial spiritual presence of Christ as the Christian community gathers together around the word, around the sacrament, where we are lifted in our hearts up to the heavenly places where we share in Christ, not as a metaphor, not as a simple idea, but as a real spiritual reality. And of course, for Calvin, the word spiritual does not mean less real than the material. It actually means more real. And so Calvin gives you, I think, quite a resource for those of, those of us who want to emphasize the work of the Spirit in the church, those of us who want to explore what the reality, the presence, the experience of the Spirit means within the life of the church, within the life of worship, which is more than just sacramental, but happens in our praise, in our communal life. Calvin, I think, gives you a resource to do that. 
He doesn't tie the Spirit to the sacraments, but neither does he think of an absent Christ. He gives us a Christ who is present amongst the community, present as we gather together around bread and wine, as we gather together around the Word. Now, you have to say, Calvin is not a charismatic. Um, he is effectively quite cessationist. He doesn't really believe the spiritual gifts of the first century are really available to the church. He tends to tie prophecy very much to preaching, for example. You wouldn't call him a charismatic, but I think out of the reformers, Calvin is the one who gives you more room to play with. And I think his rich theology of the Spirit, this idea of being united with Christ by the Spirit, and that is the heart of Christian faith, our communion with Christ, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who unites us with Christ, has a lot of richness to it. So let's draw this to a close. For Luther, the centre of his theology is justification by grace, received by faith. There is a place for the Spirit in his theology. The Spirit is the one who announces this good news of justification, this good news of what Christ has done, and the Spirit is the one who enables us to feel the effects of that announcement. The Spirit is the one who gives the gift of faith. The significance of the Spirit for Luther is the one who, in, is, he is the one who makes us aware of the work in Christ, of Christ in us. The Spirit is also the one who is tied very closely to word and sacrament. With Calvin, I would argue you get a much richer doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The centre of his theology focuses upon this union with Christ by the Spirit. And so for Calvin, the focus is not so much on an intellectual understanding of a doctrine. Calvin is sometimes uh, criticised for being overly intellectual. If you're a Calvinist, you're a very cerebral type of Christian. Actually, that's not the way Calvin thought about it at all. The focus is not an intellectual understanding of doctrine. It is this mystical union by the Spirit in which all that Christ has won becomes ours. And so the Spirit is much more integral to Calvin's theology than it is for Luther. This is not just the subjective awareness of the Spirit. It is a substantial union with Christ effected by the Spirit which is and constitutes our salvation. The Spirit is works in the sacraments to lift our hearts to the ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father. But he's not tied to the sacraments. He gives us this real participation in the ascended Christ by the Spirit. And so therefore, there's a lot more to do if you want to work with Calvin's theology of the Spirit. Uh, but I think it's something that um, is a, a very kind of one of the richest theologies of the Spirit that we find certainly in Protestant theology, uh, perhaps in all Christian theology. And uh, that many people have actually seen this as something which is a very rich contribution of Reformation theology to our theology of the Spirit. What do you think Luther's position either was or would have been about infant baptism? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Luther, as did Calvin, believed in infant baptism. Um, he felt that baptism, uh, he had a very important place for baptism in his Christian life. In, uh, now, Luther does not believe that baptism or the Holy Communion automatically save you. Um, baptism saves you only when you believe the word that says that baptism, the word in baptism that saves you. So the baptism and the Holy Communion for Luther are embodied words. They're a form of the preaching of the gospel. So just like you go to church and you hear the gospel preached by an evangelist, in the same way when the priest baptizes a child, that's the word being preached to that child. When you go to the Holy Communion, that's the word also being preached in a kind of embodied form. So for him, um, he says some quite bold things about baptism. He says, you know, when you're in doubt about your salvation, you know, am I, am I good enough? Is my prayer strong enough? Is my contrition? Am I really sorry for my sins? You know, has Christ really saved me? What do you do? He says, you don't try to really work up. You know, I really am sorry for my sins. I really, I really want to believe harder. That's the last thing you must do. Because that's trusting in your own faith, it's trusting in your own contrition. What you must do is trust in Christ. So what you do is you say, I have been baptised. That's what you say. Now that sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? Because that might say, oh, does, does he therefore believe that baptism somehow automatically saves you? No, what he's saying is, baptism is God's pledge to you that he has put his mark upon you, you are his, the word is preached to you, and it's yours. And actually, it's nothing to do with how strong or weak your faith is. 
It's this has been given to you, this gift is yours. And so by saying, I have been baptized, it's a way of saying, I cling on to this word, this promise of God. I cling on to it. I've been baptized, no one can change that. Not to do with how weak or strong my faith is. I've been baptized, so I hold on to it. So for him, baptism is always to be met with faith. If it's not met with faith, then it's not effective. So you can be baptized, but if you don't believe the word that promises the forgiveness of sins, it doesn't do you any good at all. But if you like, baptism is an embodied form of the, of the gift of the preaching of the word. So for him, in a way, um, infants are helpless. Um, they have no choice as to whether they get baptized or not. And in some ways, that for Luther pictures exactly what we are like anyway. That we're all helpless. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. We are simply receptive. Um, we, are, we, we just simply receive this gift that God gives to us. So uh, Luther believed in, in, in infant baptism. Calvin also believed in infant baptism for different reasons, uh, for covenantal reasons. For him, it was a kind of con continuity. The Old Testament had circumcision as a way into the, the covenant people of God. Uh, the New Testament people of God have baptism as, as, as their kind of you know, entry into the, um, the people of God. So both of them believed in infant baptism, but for different reasons. Did Calvin have a concept, or what was his understanding of being sealed with the Holy Spirit? Yep. Yep, there was a being sealed with the Spirit, which is this idea that the this, this Spirit uh, seals the knowledge of Christ within us. It's quite close to his idea of union with Christ in the Spirit. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a, a kind of um, an inner conviction, an inner conviction that this is true for you. Now, Luther didn't quite have that. He would go, as I say, back to baptism and say, well, I've been baptized. That's the sort of thing I, I, I trust in. Uh, Calvin has more of a, of a sense of this, this sealing of the Spirit, which is, a, again, a gift of God. It's not something you can generate and work out within yourself. But the true Christian has this, this sense that they have been sealed with the Spirit, this union with Christ that happens. Now, that sealing is confirmed by sacramental actions like baptism and, by, and, and, and Holy Communion, so they, they are part of it. Um, but the sealing of the Spirit is that inner conviction um, that the work of Christ is true you and it tells the difference between you because you can preach the gospel of course and you know half the people believe it half the people don't um it's the same gospel and uh, and so calvin would say well this these are the ones who have that sealing of the spirit that sense of being um that, that conviction of the work of the spirit within them as opposed to those who don't have that um yes he would talk about it as an experience i mean again like luther he would be wary of trusting in that experience too much the whole point is you don't trust in your experience, you don't trust in your piety, you don't trust in your prayer, your contrition, your everything else, you trust in Christ. Um, but one of the gifts of, um, of the Spirit is that, that inner conviction, that sealing of the Spirit, uh, which is a, 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 you know, he talks about God's kindness in giving us the, the sealing of the Spirit. It's a kind of confirmation. Now that sealing of the Spirit can come and go in experience. Uh, you can go through times when you don't feel the presence of the Spirit. Uh, this is when you have to still cling to the word. But one of the gifts of God is this, this, um, this inner conviction that, you ha that um, the Spirit, uh, this is true for you uh, by the sealing of the Spirit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, you said something like uh, for Calvin or for Luther, the Spirit only works through means. Yeah. What, was it Calvin or Luther who said that? Yeah, that was Luther. That Luther was says Luther. that uh, the Spirit only works through Amen. material things. Yeah. In that case, when Luther was having his experience of you know, when he was in conversion, actually, yeah. when he was being troubled by his state, would you have an idea what, what Luther think was working through him? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Luther would say that, um, uh, well, say, Luther talks about the, you know, the, the, the spirit publishes, preaches the word. And so it says what I think now Luther would describe it is that he, um, uh, he was slowly being given to understand the word which says that you are justified by faith, not by works. Now, that turn that he makes there, and it's important to grasp this about Luther, and people don't often get this, it is actually a turn in some ways to, not to, not to faith, uh, in a misunderstanding of Luther is justification by faith means that I am justified by my faith. In other words, by, this, by the exercise of my faith, as if my faith is something substantial that I offer to God. You know, I, I, I offer my faith and he gives me salvation instead. That's actually not what Luther means. I'm not justified by faith. I'm justified by Christ. Faith is simply the means by which I receive that gift. 
It's the passivity that stops trying to prove myself, stops trying to show God how good I am, and therefore he really ought to save me. It's the, the, uh, it's the attitude that simply says, no, no, I will simply believe the promise that says God justifies sinners. So it's that belief, as it were. And so and what he does with that is he makes an immediate sacramental turn. It's very interesting. In 15, uh, many scholars would say that actually 1517, the 95 Theses, Luther has not really got to his, his um, uh, Reformation theology. It really only begins to take root in about 1518 and 1519. And in 1519, he actually writes three treatises on uh, what he calls the three sacraments. So obviously, there's baptism and the Holy Communion. Uh, Luther always felt never quite sure whether penance um, absolution was a sacrament or not. Sometimes he says it is, sometimes he says it isn't. He's never quite sure. It's got this, this, this strange status in Luther's theology. But he writes one thing on penance, one on baptism, and one on holy communion. And he does that because how, is the, how does the word come to you? How is the word preached to you? And he says it happens through the preaching of the word in sermons, through the ab- words of absolution given by the priest, through baptism, the water of baptism, and through the holy communion. That's the objective, solid place you go to. And so actually, his, that's what, in a sense, so where he sees the Spirit at work, sending him back to the sacraments as the place where he can absolutely rely. That's where the Word is given to him. That's where Christ is given to him. So that's going to really ha- ha- how it happens. So the sacraments are not re- really separate from, from um, uh, they're very close to his, the turn that he makes in 1518. If you gave somebody book three, of Calvin's Institutes, but didn't tell him it was by Calvin, yep. and said, this is a modern charismatic theologian. Yep. They could believe it. Would you agree? Hmm. I think in part I would agree, yeah. Because the, um, I mean, in, in sort of charismatic Pentecostal theology, we want to emphasize a great deal the work of the Spirit that actually... And some ways, you know, the whole kind of emergence of charismatic and Pentecostal um, worship, church life, spirituality has been a rediscovery of the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit at work within the church and at work within the world. And there's an awful lot of that in Book Three of, the, of Calvin's Institutes. Um, there are a few theologians who talk in quite such rich way, who integrate the Spirit so tightly into the centre of their theology as Calvin does. And therefore, I think many a charismatic or Pentecostal theologian would look at that and would find themselves page after page saying, yes, yes, yes. Now, there are still things that are missing in it because you don't see much about the gifts of the Spirit. You don't see much about the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues uh, or the gift of, um, uh, of miracles, uh, healings. You don't see that much of that in Calvin's theology. He was skeptical about that. There are reasons why he's skeptical about it, because actually the Middle Ages was full of all kinds of dubious claims for miracles, uh, that he wanted to be a little bit skeptical about those, those things. And there's a reason why I think he, re- he reacts against the kind of overclaiming of, um, of, of the kind of miraculous in medieval Christianity. So maybe we can excuse him a little bit of that. So I think with that exception, the fact that that element of the Christian life is missing from book three, in terms of a, a rich theology of the Spirit that places the Spirit right at the center of Christian life, theology, doctrine of salvation, it's absolutely charismatic in that sense. Pentecostal, in the sense of Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit, being a crucial part of Christian theology. So in one sense, I'd probably say more Pentecostal than charismatic, slightly, because of course charismatic tends to focus on the charismatic gifts, Pentecostal is about saying the importance of Pentecost. And, and Calvin is in no doubt about the importance of Pentecost. Unless the Spirit is given, unless the Spirit unites us with Christ, so that we, we know this communion with Christ, sealed with the Spirit, then there is no salvation. When you look at Luther, you can kind of see salvation, the Spirit is not quite as integral to it as it is for Calvin. But for Calvin, it's right at the centre, which is why Calvin's theology is such a rich and, and, and wonderful thing.